Hello and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it is Monday, April 13th here in New York City. It is just another day in quarantine. I hope all of you are healthy and staying safe during this very scary, crazy time that we're all living in. Uh, coming up today on the podcast is an interview I recorded earlier today with Nick DePillo, who is the head women's basketball coach at Scran University, one of the premier Division Three women's basketball programs in the country. Coach DePillo just finished his first season there, and uh, he's doing a lot of great things there, and he's going to keep their track record of success at Scranton going, and I wouldn't be surprised to see them in, in the Final Four in the future years to come. So that's coming up today for the recommendation corner. Uh, the new season of Top Chef has been going on the last few weeks. This is one of my favorite guilty pleasure TV shows. It is fantastic. It's you know, it's a little bit of competition if you're missing sports on TV. Really good food. You'll, you'll learn some recipes. The only thing I will say is that it does make you hungry. So probably watch with a bag of chips or some other snack of, of your choice. So uh, I'm going to hit the music. And when I come back, it'll be my interview recorded earlier today with the head women's basketball coach at Scran University, Nick DePillo. Joining me today on the Double Double is the head women's basketball coach at Scran University, Nick DePillo. He began his coaching career as an assistant for the men's team at Kane University after graduating from Fairleigh Dickinson in 2003. And in his two years at Kane, he helped lead the team to 34 wins in the 2005 ECAC Metro Championship. He, beca- he began his career in the women's game in the summer of 2004, working as an advanced scout for the New York Liberty in the WNBA, then as an assistant with the Liberty for four years from 2005 to 2009. He helped lead the team to four playoff appearances, including a trip to the 2008 Eastern Conference Finals. He then worked as a skills trainer and camp director at the Monroe Sports Center in Monroe, New Jersey, before returning to the college game in 2014 as a director of player development at Seton Hall. After five seasons with the, with the Pirates, he was named the head coach of the women's team at Scranton in the summer of 2019, and in his first season, he helped lead the team to a fifth straight conference championship, an NCAA tournament appearance, and a 24-4 and record. I'm thrilled he's taking the time to join me today. Coach, how's it going? Dave, thank you so much for having me on. Um, really appreciate you taking the time and, and, uh, and sharing a little conversation with me. I'm doing well, as well as can be right about now. Uh, fortunately, happy, safe, and healthy um, during this really, really weird time in our society. But you know, other than that, everything's very good. That's great to hear. So, so, Coach, to start off, let's take us back to the beginning and tell us how you first fell in love with the game of basketball. You know, it's funny. I grew up in uh, in Central Jersey, North Brunswick, New Jersey, um, and you know, I I just grew up in an area where everybody who was kind of like in my inner circle played basketball. Um, you know, it's typical. You come home from school. It's in the summers, and you just go down to the courts and you and you play. Um, 
you know, I, for me, it was just, it was love at first sight. Like, I, I kind of dabbled with baseball a little bit. I even played football in high school. But, you know, for me, it was, it was always bas- all basketball all the time. Um, you know, I wasn't the greatest of players in the world, but I loved the game. I loved to work. I loved to get better. Um, I loved to figure out different ways I could kind of add things to my game. Um, I love the competition aspect of it. And, you know, I love the relationships. It's, it's helped me to kind of build and create over over these last however many years it's been. Yeah, so one of my good friends from Wesleyan is Jordan Sears. He's from uh, Plainfield, New Jersey. And yeah. we had many, many debates over the cafeteria lunch table about just how good New Jersey basketball is. So so just for, for the listeners who, who may not know, just, just kind of give a, a quick summary of, of what New Jersey high school basketball really is like. You know, it, it, it's funny you say that. I hope his I hope his argument was really compelling. Yeah. Um, you know, New, New Jersey basketball, is, for as long as I can remember, before me, during me, and after me, has always been has always produced some of the top players. Um, you know, in the region and in the country. Um, you know, during my high school career alone, um, I played against Al Harrington, who played at the Patrick School, what used to be St. Patrick's now, yeah. the Patrick School. Played multiple times against Jay Williams, who was who played at St. Joe's in Patuxent. Obviously, went on to to star at Duke and, and was number two overall pick in the NBA draft. Uh, I had my college, my high school career ended uh, by Dante Jones, uh, who played at Steinert High School. Um, ended up going to Rutgers, then Duke, and, and had a really long career in the NBA. Yeah, um, and, and that just go, and that just you know some of the the, the big names uh, that, that I had the opportunity to play against in high school. It, Central Jersey, North Jersey, South Jersey, you know, the, the, the level um, was, was always phenomenal, not only in high school, but then obviously when you went to the AU circuit, um, you know, the, the, the phrase tough Jersey guy, um, you know, we always used to throw that around, you know, amongst each other. Um, some of our best runs were, you know, in the in the parks in the summer, uh, you know, we, we used to play down at Monmouth a lot, St. Peter's High School mm-hmm. um, in, in New Brunswick, um, you know, those when all the all the Jersey guys would come back from from their colleges and, and, and play pickup in the summer. Those were some of the some of the best runs that I've ever been a part of. Um, and, and yeah, just you know the, the connections that were, where the game has taken a lot of Jersey people and us coming back and having that that, that bond in common. It's it, it's interesting. And uh, you know, it's funny. One of my high school teammates, um, Tim Howard. Who went on to a to a long illustrious career with U.S. Soccer, mm-hmm. um, which was probably one of the best basketball players I ever played against. He was just such a naturally gifted athlete, and obviously he did. He, he made a really good choice going into soccer. But <laughs> if, he, if, if he wanted to choose a, uh, if he wanted to pursue a, a high level Division One basketball career, he definitely could have done that as well. Coach, I, I absolutely love just the casual name dropping there, and, and I'll definitely ask you about <laughs> Listen, Tim Howard. About Jersey of course, role, right? yeah. <laughs> so, so kind of so 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 in high school, you had the chance to play against. Obviously, you mentioned all these guys who played at not only the top level in college but also t- towards the NBA. Do, what did did you end up playing in college, and, and kind of what was your recruiting process like in high school? While I'm sure you were pursuing it. Yeah, you know, I, I played uh, at Fairleigh Dixie University up in Teaneck, uh, a small Division One school, in Northeast Conference. Um, you know, my high school team, you know, we we were blessed with a lot of high level athletes. And for a public high school, we had obviously Timmy, who went on to a, to a really uh, prestigious career professionally in soccer. Uh, we had four other guys go to Division One um, uh, basketball. Two of them I actually played with uh, in college at Fairleigh Dickinson, Mensa Peterson, and Rashawn Sumpkins. Um, one of one of my teammates uh, ended up playing at Monmouth. We had a couple of guys uh, go Division One football as well. 
Um, so we, we were a little, little bit odd for a public high school just to be, mm-hmm. um, you know, so stacked. So a lot of our, you know, my recruiting wasn't really high, to be totally honest with you. Um, I ended up going to a place where, you know, the, the fit for me was good and the connection for me was good. Um, again, even once I got to college, didn't exactly have, you know, a great uh, career, but the, the, the bonds that I made, um, the love I had for the game and, and all the lessons I learned, um, you know, through my, my career, um, I think really set me up for um, the profession I ended up choosing once I graduated. Yeah, so so that kind of brings me to, to my next question. As as someone who is still in college, it's kind of starting junior and senior year, you start getting all these emails from the Career Center and all your friends start talking about internships and what they're starting to think about doing post-graduation. Absolutely. Was there a time that, that you remember or kind of a moment where you were like, you know what, I, I want to pursue coaching basketball as a as a career? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. At the Division One level, I wasn't I wasn't necessarily athletically equipped to uh, to hang with a lot of a lot of the guys who I was playing with every day. Um, so I kind of had to work two and three times as hard just to kind of hold my own um, here and there. And as we were beginning our senior year at college, you know, I, I played for Tom Green, longtime successful coach at FDU. And we had four seniors um, my, my last year, and he brought us all in. And three of them went on to play uh, overseas professionally oh, wow. you know, at various levels. And when he got to me, he goes, well, listen, you know, playing overseas is probably not in, in the cards for you. But, um, you know, you've always had a great mind for the game. Have you ever thought about getting into coaching? And, you know, I, I kind of thought about it here and there um, to that point. But once he brought that to my mind, I kind of used that entire senior year to just kind of view and see the game a lot differently. Um, after senior year was over, um, I started making some calls and sending out letters and emails. And, and I met um, a guy named Bruce Hamburger, who was the head men's basketball coach at Kane. And we really hit it off. He was looking for a young, hungry assistant who who wanted to learn, who wanted to work. Um, and it, it worked out really well. I mean, I spent I spent two years working for Bruce. He taught me so many things. He's, he's one of my closest friends to this day. And, um, you know, if it wasn't for him, I don't think I'd be, you know, not even just the coach, but the person I am today. He's, he's turned into one of my closest friends and definitely one of my mentors. So that's great. And, and as you said, you begin coaching at Kane right after graduation for the men's team. Just what are some of the challenges of coaching players who are so close in age to you as you were at that time? You, you know, I think it's funny you say that. It's, it's really drawing the line between like these are kids that you would work out with or interact with socially, you know, a few months ago. And I think that the number one thing is just how you present yourself every day. Uh, you know, making sure um, you're not trying to be a college kid anymore. You know, that was the number one thing that Bruce talked to me about. He's like, listen, you guys know a couple months, you know, you just graduated a couple months ago, but you're not a college kid anymore. So, mm-hmm. you know, the way you walk into the office, the way you present yourself, the way you talk to not only the kids, but, athletic administration and support staff you know those are things you have to be really really cognizant of um you know that that was by far the number one thing and and then the second thing and it's something that's kind of stuck with me and if there's one piece of advice i always give to every uh, aspiring college coach it's your knowledge has to always be on point and, and regardless of the level and for me i spend time in the men's and the women's game regardless of the gender that you're coaching you know you lose a kid's trust if you're unprepared yeah. You know, so, so for me, you know, being prepared, and even every once in a while, if I had to say I don't know, but I'll get you the answer. 
you know, I, I learned that at a really young age that, um, you know, the last thing you ever want to do is lose the trust of one of your players. For sure. For sure. So for the listeners who might not know, the WNBA season takes place during the summertime. So the season basically runs from May to September, basically. So you become an advanced scout for the New York Liberty for the 2004 season. Kind of how did you first get involved with the team and, and what intrigued you about working for a WNBA team? Yeah, so, you know, the intriguing thing for me was just it was an opportunity um, to learn about more about basketball at its highest level. Yeah. Um, and during, I almost, it must have been during, it was during my first year with Bruce at Kane, um, an assistant coach at the time, Jeff House, um, he was an assistant coach with the New York Liberty. He had come to a, a couple of our practices. He was another Jersey guy um, who, you know, shared a lot of mutual connections with. He, um, he invited me to some practices and things of that nature and, and at, at the WNBA level, but we'd use a lot of regional advanced scouts just to kind of cut down on, on travel costs. Um, so he had asked me to do a couple of regional scouting games here and there. Um, I would you know, drive up to Connecticut, drive down to DC, maybe a flight down to Charlotte every once in a while um, just to get information about upcoming opponents and, you know, and share it, bring it back and share it with the coaching staff. Um, you know, they, I guess, liked the job I did. Um, and there was a there was a change with the head coach uh, the following season, and it was changed from Richie Adubato to Patty Coyle. And, and Patty and I had developed a really good relationship, and, and she respected the work I did. And it kind of transitioned, uh, it presented an opportunity for me to jump from you know the men's game to the women's game as a full time assistant coach. Um, you know, a lot of people ask me how did you get into the women's game, and, and for me, the women's game kind of presented itself to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know if when I was getting into the profession, if, if, if I could have anticipated uh, being in a women's game for as long as I have, uh, but the opportunity presented itself to me. And, uh, you know, a lot of people who, who have made a, such a huge impact in my career have been in the women's game. And, you know, it's kind of where I've been, you know, where I am, you know, 14, 15 years later. And, uh, you know, I'm really thankful for all the things it's given me. Yeah, for sure. So just kind of back to what in, in your role as an advanced scout, one of the things that's always has intrigued me is kind of kind of in that role is you go to games ahead of your team and just kind of just the things that you're looking for and because you're kind of decoding everything, trying to pick up play calls and everything. So so while you're sitting there watching a, a game that that you're scouting, kind of what's your process? Are you taking notes? Do you have a, do you have a system? Like what are the things that you're looking for to best help the team that's going to be coming in to to play them? So it, it, it's funny you say that. So one of the, the very first game I went to be an advanced scout for, uh, the, the level, and, and one of the things I don't think people give enough credit to the WNBA is, and, and just generally people who don't watch enough of, of, of pro sport at the highest level, the coaching and the game move so fast at such yeah. a high level. It, it could just absolutely overwhelm you. So I said at the first game I was at, and I didn't even know where to start. I mean, I went from I went from coaching Division Three basketball, which again I coach Division Three now, and, and the coaching is terrific. But you know, you're at the WNBA, you're at the peak of your profession, right? Yeah. So, so for me, the the process I kind of put in, kind of getting advice from other people who've sat in there, is you're not going to get everything all at once watching a game live. So you just kind of get a running timesheet going. So you know, at nine fifty two you know, Charlotte calls fists and you just write that down. You don't worry about diagramming and you just write times and things that you pick up. 
So that way, after the game, I would literally go get the VHS tape or the DVD, and I would go back to my hotel room, uh-huh. and I would replay it and compare it to my notes, and that would kind of help me formulate my, um, you know, my scouting report that I would eventually turn in. So, you know, if I had to rely on just watching the game one time, um, my reports would have been absolutely terrible. <laughs> That's awesome. So, so after, as you said, after one season as an advanced scout, you become an assistant coach starting in the 2005 season. And I just believe, coach, that there are, that that even though coaching professionals might seem easier because they are better players, it presents its own unique challenges. So, what are just some of the key differences in coaching pro basketball players versus college players? Yeah, the, the number one thing is just the basketball IQ of, of the players that uh, that that I coached. Um, you know, the team that I took over, that I came on as an assistant with um, in, in 05, we were full of veteran veteran players. Um, Vicky Johnson, Crystal Robinson, Becky Hammond was, was our point guard on that team. Um, and, and I remember we were playing uh, Connecticut in a, preseason, in a preseason game, you know, in, in early mid-May, whatever it was. And I talked about something in the scout. And, and fast forward to September, we're playing them again in the playoffs, and I made a point, and Becky stopped my my walkthrough. It's like, well, you told us in the preseason game this, <laughs> and it, it hit me at that point, like, wow, like the level of intellect mm-hmm. that pro players have is is absolutely off the chart. So, you know, kind of goes back to the advice I always give young coaches: is you know, be unbelievably prepared. You know, know things inside out and out. Don't be afraid to say, I don't know. I'll get you the answer. Um, you know, the, the, like I said, the basketball IQ and, and the basketball acumen is, is absolutely unbelievable. And obviously Becky's on the whole nother level. Yeah. Um, as you can kind of see, having gone on to the, the terrific coaching career she, she's been on um, in, in her career. But, you know, I could rattle off 20, 30 names of, of players in the WNBA who I've coached that, you know, have gone on to college, college coaching careers or professional coaching careers. And, and they've just done an unbelievable job. And, and you know, they probably, they probably pushed me, you know, in that first year for sure. But, you know, my five total years in the, in the WNBA really just pushed my, my basketball knowledge and, and the, the attention to detail just to a whole other level. So I apologize if this is a dumb or, or a simple question, but are there just any differences in coaching women compared to men? Honestly, no. You know, there, there's not. I mean, you know, obviously the game is slightly different from a speed and athleticism standpoint. Um, but the game, you know, basketball is basketball. You know, mm-hmm. schematically, you're still dealing with a lot of, a lot of, you know, the same concepts on, on both ends of the floor. Um, you know, I, I think both men steal from the women's game. Women's game definitely steals from the men's game. Um, you know, some of the best coaches I've ever been around have been at the high school level on, on the men's and the women's side. Um, so the, the game really is a, a lot different. Obviously, it's played you know a lot more below the rim, um, but you know conceptually and feel and, and the way you coach and, and teach and approach your kids, you know that that really that really doesn't change from one gender to the next. So one of your responsibilities with the Liberty was assisting with player evaluations and draft prep. So what yep. types of things were you looking for in a player for you to consider drafting them? You know, it, 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 it isn't a lot different than the process we go through recruiting at the at the college level. Obviously, you, you understand the skill set that you need to fit your system, you know, the size, the athleticism, the ability to shoot, the vision, 
um, you know, the defensive prowess. But for us, and it's something that I thought the pro game has always been really, really ahead on, and, and you hear about it a lot more, is you want to learn, you know, the inner workings of, of, a, of a potential player for your team. Um, you know, what kind of teammate are they? How do they respond to adversity? And those, all those things, you know, you, you really have to deep dive talking to their strength conditioning coach, their training staff, obviously the assistant coaches, the head coaches. Um, you know, you find find other people who may know them, the whole six degrees of separation thing. Um, you know, evaluating a kid's talent, you know, it is generally speaking relatively easy. Um, but figuring out what makes that particular player tick, um, you know, do they have a yearning desire to get better? You know, what are the reasons they play for? What's their why? Um, those are the things that really people who you know, make very few mistakes or make a lot of mistakes in, in the recruiting or, or draft process, you know, you can kind of always go back to looking at their process for, for the evaluation. You know, I, I think everybody's at that level, whether it's the college level or the WNBA level, you know, they can spot talent. And that's, mm-hmm. not the hard, that's not the hardest part of the job. You know, the, the hard part comes into doing the deep diving and asking the, the, the right probing questions um, you know about that player to see if they'll fit your culture and your system. Right, for sure, for sure. So, so one highlight of the 2008 season was that you guys had a chance to participate in the first ever outdoor pro basketball game yeah. at Arthur Ashe Stadium, which, for the listeners who don't know, is it's the main tennis court used for the U.S. Open out in Queens, and over yeah. 19,000 fans attended that game. Unfortunately, you guys fell to the Indiana Fever in that one, but what was just that whole experience like, and what sticks out to you about that game after all this time? It was – the experience was surreal. I mean, we we practiced out – you know, so the weather worked out perfectly, and mm-hmm. there was a, obviously a contingency plan when you play at an outdoor stadium. If there's, you know, a certain percentage of rain in the forecast, you know, you scrap the plan, and you go back to Madison Square Garden, you play the game there. You know, fortunately, other than the unbelievably blazing heat, <laughs> that, that's, that's one thing that's that's one thing that for sure sticks out. Um, it's it was it was it was just a, such a cool experience. Um, we practiced there the day before. Um, it's it's it was just crazy, and I had never been in Arthur Ashe Stadium to that point. Um, I had, I've actually been to a couple of U.S. Opens uh, since then. Um, just the size of the stadium. You know, you go from coaching in one of the world's most famous arenas in Madison Square Garden to such to an outdoor stadium that's just it was overwhelming it was breathtaking um it was hard to concentrate on just the game um you know you have a little bit of the outdoor elements the wind and, and the glare kind of a little bit of effect but both teams you know dealt with the same thing so it really wasn't that big of a deal um but you know there was definitely a palpable buzz of energy and obviously a great fan turnout um out there it was definitely an experience i have a picture of a pretty good sized picture of that on, on my desk in my office it's, that's awesome it's a great talking piece and everybody's always shocked to see like oh what's you know, what's what's Madison square gardens court doing outside <laughs> it, it was actually it was actually really cool but it was a very cool thing yeah so the, the u.s open is probably one of my favorite new york uh events i couldn't recommend more yeah. people going and, and checking it out so after oh, it, def- it definitely yeah. is you're absolutely right yeah, so so after the 2008 season, you decide to leave the Liberty and and you become a, a the head skills trainer and camp director at the Monroe Sports Center out in New Jersey, and it's like this sports complex. So, what went into the decision to go from the pro ranks to training and working with 
young with much younger players. Yeah, so it was, it was actually a, a dual kind of thing. Um, it was a family friend of mine who opened up that the Monterey Sports Center at the time, um, and I also got into doing pre-draft training um, for guys who were coming, going from college and into the NBA draft. Uh, one of my college assistant coach, uh, Jim Carr, at the time he ended up being an assistant at Rutgers, and he had to get a kid uh, named Hamidi Enjai who was ended up being a second round pick. Uh, by the Washington Wizards in the 2010 NBA draft, um, the year they picked uh, John Wall and Trevor Booker. Um, and he had asked me to, to train him um, and kind of get him ready for the draft. At the time, the Monroe Sports Center needed um, a skills trainer and camp director to kind of head up their programming. Um, and it was a really fun, exciting time for me. Um, you know, I, I loved the getting in the gym and running camps and clinics and things of that nature. Um, but training Hamidi for, for the NBA draft that year opened up a, a few other doors for me as well. It ended up be, becoming a thing where I trained, I guess, over four years. I trained a handful of guys who, in preparation for the draft. Um, I had, a, I'd say, a good 15 to 18 guys who I trained during the, the lockout period mm-hmm. um, that the NBA went through in the early 2010s. Um, and it kind of helped me expand my basketball network a lot during that time. So, um, you know, it, it gave me a lot of freedom. Uh, to kind of run my own personal business as I pleased. Um, and it really opened me up to another level of basketball that I hadn't really been to, exposed to at that time, um, you know, on the NBA side of things. Yeah, and it's it's just become really popular, Coach, the last few years, I guess just as the NBA game has changed. You see all these, not, not just all these skills trainers, but you see all yeah. these videos of these guys come out for the NBA, and everyone is firing away threes. Whether you're a five ten point guard or a seven foot four center, everyone is firing away yeah. threes. Kind of when when you were training players in 2010 2011, what was kind of your process in putting together a workout plan for these guys, and and kind of how did you go about getting these guys ready for the draft? Yeah, so uh, it's you know, when you're going through the draft process kind of like in every other sport when you go through the pre-draft process a lot of what you're doing isn't necessarily translatable to the actual game itself you know Mm -hmm. in football they do the nfl combine and you know you're running around in shorts and a t-shirt yeah and and basketball basketball going through the pre-draft process you're not playing five on five it's really about your skills so for me it was reinforcing the things that you do really well that have gotten you to this point and then trying to work a little bit on the things that you can show tangible improvement that you know that these teams are going to want to see. So, you know, Hamdi was just, he was a seven foot athletic center who had played with high energy and finished at the rim. Um, so obviously the, the number one thing we wanted to make sure we, we were able to do with him is keep him in the best possible physical shape we could. Mm-hmm. Um, so he can play at that high level through the entire draft process. Um, a lot of these workouts are either one-on-one, two-on-two, or in some cases one-on-zero. So, you know, you don't get a lot of time for rest in, in those workouts with these NBA teams. And, you know, we just wanted to also show a little bit of a post-game, um, you know, ability to finish with both hands and have a counter move each direction you go to. Um, then you have another guy uh, who I ended up working with the next year, Bojan Bogdanovich, um, who with the Utah Jazz now ended up being the first pick in the second round by the Brooklyn Nets. Um, a few years back who came over from Croatia mm-hmm. and he was just a lights out shooter and we just had to go over different ways for him to get off his shot in these one-on-one and two-on-two settings now fortunately he had been a pro 
um, for, for a pretty long time over in Europe, um, which kind of helped him out. And obviously the same thing the, the following year had Dario Saric, uh, who came over from Croatia as well. So he, and you know, another guy who, who's been playing against pros for a really, really long time. It's just, you know, just kind of making sure you're as sharp as you can be, um, you know, and making sure your body is, is in the best physical shape that you can be. But, you know, I think everybody has a different set of needs um, as they kind of go through their their pre-draft process. I think it's just really assessing, you know, what can you accentuate that and show these scouts and these teams that, that they want to see as they're, as they're kind of making their decisions. So, after four years of working at the Monroe Sports Center and training all these guys and get ready for the pre-draft process, what kind of inspired you to get back into collegiate coaching and specifically in the women's game? So, when I was at the New York Liberty, I had draft. We we drafted a kid in in the I want to say it was the third round in two thousand seven two thousand eight um, from Iona College, and the head coach there at the time was was Tony Bazella, and and coach and I had, had met. We became pretty good friends. Uh, we bounced ideas off of each other. I would go up to his practices when he was at Iona um, a bunch, and, and we would just talk the game, and, you know, I'd share ideas. He'd bounce things off of me, and we always kind of stayed, stayed close. Every once in a while, he would, you know, throw it out. You know, you should get back into it. If I have an opening on my staff, you should join me. And, yeah, you know, I never – I really liked what I was doing. Uh, but after a few years – doing what I was doing with, with you know, training guys and, and, and running camps and things. I, I really did miss coaching at, at a high level. Um, Tony ended up getting the Seton Hall women's job. Um, and then him and I touched base. Uh, he extended an offer for me to join his staff, and, and I, I eventually accepted. Um, you know, being being a Jersey guy, Seton Hall is one of the premier programs, premier schools and universities in, in the area um, for me to – to coach with a friend of mine um, at, at a university that wasn't far from home, um, knowing that I could trust him, knowing that our visions and how we saw the game really aligned, it, it was it was an easy decision for me to make. And you know, he's still one of my closest friends to this day, and so it was it ended up being a decision that you know I, I was really excited about at the time, but I know it was one of the best ones I've ever made. Yeah, so 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 you returned to, to Seton Hall as the director of player development. So kind of what does that job entail and how does your role vary during from, let, let's say, the off season to the regular season? Yeah, so basically at the Division One level, you have you know, your head coach, you have your three assistant coaches, and then you have a couple ops or, in my, in my case, director of player development. So I wasn't necessarily on the court um, all the time with with the players and I wasn't on the road recruiting. So for me, my job was a hundred percent basketball. It was um, breaking down film and, and helping the team prepare for um, upcoming opponents, which, you know, kind of going back to my experience in the WNBA level, um, I was very prepared for that. Um, it was identifying weaknesses and, and, and implementing programs uh, for our, tra- our players to get better in season, preseason, off season, um, and, and, and ultimately just making sure that the, the trajectory of each player and in turn our program um, was, was going in the right direction. Um, obviously, just coming from the WNBA level, I had a lot of influence um, with, some, with a lot of the X's and O's that we did, both on offensive and the defensive end. Um, and again, you know, working for a guy who I had significant trust in him and he had significant trust in me, it, it was a really, really positive working relationship. 
um, you know, for me. Um, you know, after three years of that, um, I ended up sliding up to an assistant spot, which really mm-hmm. just allowed me to get on the floor a little bit more, have a little bit more hands-on um, with our players. Um, it, you know, opened me up to, to do a lot more recruiting for the program as well. Um, you know, in, in our five years there, we had we had a lot of success, and you know, Coach Bazzella, you know, he's, he's still still going strong there. They had a great great year they won 19 19 games and you know would have won a few more if their season didn't get, didn't get cut short um, due to all the uh the coronavirus stuff yep. but um you know the, the time is eating all having gone to a couple NCAA champion NCAA tournaments you know winning a big east championship um going to a bunch of NITs it was you know I, I've got the rings to show for it it, <laughs> it, it, was, it, it, it was it was it was it was such a fun experience you know, just another opportunity for me to learn and, and see the game at a really high level with with and against a lot of high-level coaches and talent. For sure. And, and and as you said, you got promoted to be an assistant coach in the summer of 2017. And in the 2018-2019 season, you guys played UConn, which is the preeminent women's college team in the entire country. The odds were stacked against you, but I'm just curious about what is the process like in prepping to play UConn being such heavy underdogs you, you know it's funny a lot of people have actually asked us that question and and the one thing i'll say is regardless of who you are and the level you're at and, and who your opponent is your process has to stay the same you know and, and listen as coaches in, in our coaches meetings and as players in a locker room you know i think we understood who we were playing against and obviously they were you know they, i want to say they were number one at the time yeah um and they went to they went to another national championship game that year. You know, they, I think they lost the finals to Mississippi State that year. Um, I could I could be wrong about who they lost to, um, but the, for us the process didn't change. Like we knew, we knew what our process was in, in, in preparation. We knew when we would break down sets. We would knew we knew what time it was to go through out of bounds plays and go over our presses, our special situation things. So you know, for us, just because the opponent was who the opponent was, the process we went through didn't really change. Um, now it's one thing to watch game film of a bunch of all Americans and one of the best teams in the country. And then when you get into the gym with them in front of you know, 12, 13,000 people at, at the Hartford Excel center, it's a little bit different at that yeah. point. But, you know, if you try to change who you are and what you do, you're not going to be successful. You know, for us, we knew we had to try to do, you know, we knew what we were good at that year. We, you know, we were we were a really good three-point shooting team. We're a high-volume shooting team. We played at a certain pace. We pressured the ball defensively. Um, and we knew, obviously, we would have to do those things exceptionally well just to give ourselves an opportunity. But we knew if we tried to do something completely different than who we were, you know, that, that wouldn't have ended well. You know, yeah. For what it's worth, we, we were up 3-2 um, in the game. <laughs> um, it, it, it went downhill after that. But, uh, you know, they, 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 they obviously had a, a very – very talented, deep roster, and you know, coached by one of one of the greats in in, in our game, you know, male or female. Yeah, for um, sure. You know, Coach RM is one of the best. And and I'm just curious, and, and for just and just for the listeners too, because everyone hears about UConn, and we see on TV the winning streaks and the margins of victory that they have in in a lot of games. Just from coaching against them and, and being in Division One women's college basketball for as long as as you have. What is it about Connecticut that just makes them so good? You know, just in my time at Seton Hall, I'm not sure if I would have been able to answer that. But having been at a WNBA and seeing a lot of their practices and, and drafting and coaching a lot of his players, 
the thing that they do great is they're the same every time. Mm-hmm. You know, you can go to a workout in July, you can go to a practice in October, November, or or in preparation for a Final Four. The intensity, their attention to detail, it, it, it's absolutely outstanding. You know, the standard of excellence they have in that program. You know, the upperclassmen teach the, the lower classmen, the freshmen and sophomores. You know, they know how they do things. The culture they have there, you know, it, it is absolutely phenomenal. And, and I've always been a big believer that, you know, culture isn't just some bullet points that you put up on a wall. It's it's the way we do things. And the way they do things there uh, over the entire course of Coach RM's career, um, you know, it, it's kind of led them to who they are today. Obviously, you have to have great players, but, you know, a lot of people have great players as well. Yeah. I think this, the standard of excellence, you know, it always starts at the top. And, you know, their, their upperclassmen have always been able to lead the way. Um, they recruit talented kids, but they recruit high-level character kids with unbelievable work ethics. Um, and, and I think it's that, that's definitely been the, the, the main reason they've been as successful as they have over such a sustained period of time. In the summer of 2019, you get hired to be the head women's basketball coach at Scranton, which, for the listeners who don't know, it's it's one of the best women's basketball programs in all Division Three basketball. What made you leave Division One and come coach at the Division Three level? You know, I, I always wanted to be a head coach, and, and for me, that that's that's always been the start of it. You know, I've always from the from the day I got into this profession that came back in 2003, 2004. You know, I always wanted to to run my own program, and, and from that time on, when I got into the profession. I always started to formulate my vision of what I wanted my program to look like. And, and after five years at Seton Hall, I, I started to explore some things. Uh, I never anticipated going to the Division three level. But when the Scranton job opened up, uh, my athletic director, Dave Martin, I've, I've known for you know a decent, decently long time. He's actually really good friends with Bruce Sandberger, who gave me my first job, mm-hmm. which is kind of weird how your world always <laughs> seemed to collide. Um, so, you know, I reached out to Dave, and I had a really good conversation um, a couple weeks later, I went on campus, and, and from the time I stepped on campus at Scranton, um, by that time I had done my history, my, my research on the history of the program, the university. Um, I, I was very aware of the success they've had over, you know, over a lifespan of their program. Um, I knew about the support, the tremendous support in the community from the university, from the athletic department. Um, but what, what kind of made Scranton special for me was all the people who I met. I had an opportunity to meet with a bunch of my players. Uh, during the process, met with coaches from the other sports, uh, met with people from, you know, across campus, uh, a couple of vice presidents, uh, and, and the people just made it a really welcoming area. And, and I knew at Scranton I could recruit the type of kid who I wanted a coach. I could recruit high character, high level academic, and, and just blue collar workers who could help continue not only just be successful, but be successful in the way that I wanted to play. Um, and, and for me, for me, it was a no brainer. So when, you know, a couple weeks later, when I was the first person to interview for the job and, you know, it's always better to be first or last, yeah. is what everyone <laughs> always tells me, but being first, I had to wait for Dave to interview, you know, whatever it was three or four other people. So it ended up being about two and a half to three weeks. And oh, wow. you know, I'm not, the, I'm not exactly the most patient person <laughs> in the world. So I was definitely, I was definitely suffering from a lack of sleep. So when Dave called me on, it was a Monday morning. He called me at like 9 a.m. Uh, to offer me the job. You know, I, I couldn't have said yes fast enough. And, uh, you know, for the, the time, the timing was perfect for me, um, you know, at this point in my career to kind of to take on this challenge. 
and you know it, it's it's been a great ride. So you've mentioned culture, and, and you've mentioned that Scranton's a place where you can see yourself recruiting the type of player to, to play the way you want. Just how did you go about installing your your own culture and ideas for the program? And was there any I don't want to say like concern, or were there any extra pressure? Because of just how successful the program had been to try to do to to try to change too much. Yeah, you know the the, the year obviously last year they the spring went twenty eight and three. Um, they they had an unbelievable unbelievable run in the postseason, and Coach Woodruff ended up getting the job at the head coaching job of Bucknell. And you know whoever took over that program, you were inheriting a group of really, really good players. And most of the team had returned from a year ago. They had lost an All-American shooting guard um, and, and actually another guard who, who played a lot for them. But a bulk of the team was back. So when I got the job, the thing I had to make sure that I did was be true to myself as a coach and, and play the way I wanted to play, but also have a, enough respect to understand that this team was really, really successful doing things a certain way. Mm-hmm. So even though even though this past season we didn't fully play um, at the pace and with the tempo that I'm looking forward to playing with in the future, um, it was really important that the kids knew that I had an understanding of what they did to make them successful previously and kind of take that and then eventually mold it into my own style. Um, you know, the players were excited about picking up our tempo and our pace a little bit, uh, but they were I had to be very cognizant of making sure a lot of the things I did, especially in the defense event, were, were, were things that they were very comfortable with. Yeah. Um, it was something we probably struggled with a little bit early in the year. Um, you know, we, we, had, we won our first 10 games and then lost three out of five. Um, but after that, you know, we ended up winning 12 in a row, um, and, and actually 13 in a row, and we ended up, it ended up, it was a perfect combination of us figuring out what worked best for us in the, going forward and, and kind of taking things that helped them be really successful last year. And for us, you know, for me, the seniors, the way they bought in um, and, and didn't really push back and, you know, question in a respectful, responsible way. And we're always yearning for the best possible way to do things. Um, it, it, it definitely went a long way to helping us get better as the season went on. Coach, there still seems to be a big gap, though, between the top level of the Division Three women's game where you guys are and where many teams uh, around the country are. And I know that you said that you, you know coaches try to treat every game the same and prep the same way, but you're coaching really smart players at Scranton. Everyone knows that you guys are huge favorites and are most likely going to win. Is it harder to prepare for a game where you guys are such big favorites? You know, absolutely. You know, you know, to be totally honest, it was a lot harder than, than I anticipated. And, and until having gone through it this year, um, it's really important as a coach, as a coaching staff, that we set the correct message, the same message every day, the same way I talked about our approach prior to playing UConn when I was at Seton Hall. You know, our approach every day at Scranton has to, has, had to be consistent. And it was a battle at times because, you know, our, our kids aren't, you know, the kids are very smart. You know, they they had played against some of these teams before, and they knew they, that we were going to go in and we could play less than our A game and be successful. But for us as a staff, it, it was it was important for us to focus on playing the best version of Scranton basketball that we could. So 
we could peak at the right time. You know, our competitive desire, our competitive edge, and, and our appreciation of execution and doing the little things, it, that's not a switch. That's not something that we could turn on and off. Um, so, you know, I, I thought the kids did a great job uh, for the most part, you know, keeping their eyes on what was directly in front of them. Um, but again, you know, you, sometimes you're dealing with 18 and 22-year-old, 18 to 22-year-old kids. And, you know, they're, them being smart is, you know, it's, a, it's, it's as a coach, you love it. Mm-hmm. I wish they weren't so smart. Right <laughs> they were just kind of focus on being the best versions of themselves that they can be in that moment. But no, you, to answer your question, it's definitely, definitely a tough thing to do. So one of the things that I really like about the women's college game is that there's been a bunch of different rule changes that make it more like the NBA and the WNBA and just professional basketball in general than the men's college game is. For instance, you guys play four 10-minute quarters instead of two halves, fouls reset after every quarter. For just yep. firstly, do you like playing four quarters? And and how does just the, just the different rules affect your in-game coaching strategy? You know... When I was in the WNBA after my second year, we actually went from halves to quarters. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of like my first uh, taste of it. And then when I was at Seton Hall after my first year, the women's game went from quarters as well. So I did have like a, a good base of knowledge of what that would look like. For me, I, I think it's, you know, men's college basketball now is the only level that only that plays halves. Yeah. Um, so so it, it's a little bit strange um, seeing that, obviously. Um, I love the quarters, and I think it, it, it introduces a lot more special situations. You know, as a coach, you always want to find ways where you can impact the game um, positively for your team. Look for look for advantages, gain advantages, um, and, and with the quarters, like I said, it, it definitely introduces some more special situations. Um, gives us some more things that we want to go over in practice, um, and obviously, you know, one, one of the other big things is which I guess they introduced a few years back was the ability to advance the ball under a minute um, the same way that you do in the NBA, uh, you know, which is a great thing for, you know, coming from the WNBA where we dealt with so many different special situations. Um, it it kind of helped prepare us, you know, better at Seton Hall when that, that, when that kind of, when that rule change took place and now being a head coach, just the appreciation for that. Your team always needs to be prepared for so many situations, whether yeah. it's just to inbound the ball when they're fouling down two, down three, up three, do you foul, you know, under 10 seconds when you're, when it's a three-point game, um, how to manage the fouls, because like you said, they do reset every quarter, you know, with five, you know, you go right to two shots, and there's no no more bonus, no more one-on-one, so there's definitely a lot of things, I love that the game is ever-evolving, um, you know, hopefully next year, not this coming season, the next one, um, you know, we move the three-point line back a little bit, and we make the charge circle, the restricted area, um, the same as the men's game. Mm-hmm. I do believe that. I do believe that the games, the game should be the same. The dimensions of court should be the same. You know, basketball is like seems to be the only sport where, based on your gender and the level, the rules seem to change a lot. So I, yeah. I think having some, you know, the game being uniform um, at all levels and, and and all genders, you know, would be best for the for the growth of the game. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. So obviously, Coach, the coronavirus pandemic has altered normal life around the country and really the entire globe. Many sports teams are being super creative in how they are staying connected while practicing social and physical distancing. What are some things that you are doing at Scranton to stay connected with the women in your program? 
you know, the biggest thing for us is, you know, prior to the coronavirus, I'm not sure if I knew what a Zoom meeting was, <laughs> um, but, but, but I've gotten really, really comfortable with it since then. Um, you know, the way our season ended, obviously, with all of this, um, we didn't have a chance to have our, our final team meeting, our exit meetings, um, our, our individual meetings with players. Um, so we were, we were able, we've been able to do that through Zoom. Um, you know, it's been, it's been a great opportunity to kind of be face to face the best we can, you know, with, with the social distancing, um, you know, so that's helped a lot. Um, we had spring break, you know, right at the beginning of the coronavirus stuff. Um, and now with the kids doing online learning, um, with all of their classes, um, you know, we've been able to kind of stay in contact with them. We've done some group meetings, um, with them kind of talking about our goals for next year where, where we're looking for them to improve individually and as a team, um, as a coaching staff, you know, we need a lot, you know, via zoom, um, recruiting has obviously changed a little bit for us as well. Um, you know, we've gone from doing home visits to virtual home visits. Um, so that's, that's been a little bit, it's been a little bit different, a little bit challenging. Um, fortunately I have a couple of younger, uh, people on my staff who, who, who are very good, who are very technologically savvy. Um, so they've been, they've, they've been able to help with the, with the PowerPoints and the presentations that we've been able to do. Um, but you know, the times that we live in, we have to adapt, we have to adjust. Um, you know, it, it's always, this, this is presented an opportunity for us to grow, um, to kind of deep dive, um, into, into our game film from last year, uh, watch some of our peers play, um, have to work on different projects and, um, hear different speakers and, and just different ways to grow individually as a team, as a coaching staff. And so we can get more, when the social, social distancing restrictions eventually get lifted, um, we're a lot, we're a lot more prepared to hit the ground running and, and again, be the best versions of ourselves that we can be moving forward. So one thing coach that I'm always fascinated by is, okay, if, if a player wants to get better at shooting, they can go outside every day and shoot a thousand jump shots. But for a head coach, with all the NCAA rules and everything, it's like if you want to work on end of game situations, you guys aren't really allowed to go out and and coach your team or or teams in general and really practice those types of things. So, what are some of the things that you're doing for your own personal professional development during this time? Yeah, so there's there's been the virtual coaches clinic that's been going on um, online. So, I'd say maybe 100 150 speakers from men's game, women's game, NBA, college, high school, international basketball. They've been running online virtual coaches clinics. So you know, I'm a big clinic guy. I love going to clinics and hearing new ideas and seeing new concepts, just trying to think outside of the box and think differently for me uh, so it could stimulate my thoughts and my growth. Um, so I, I've been able to take part in that over the last few weeks. Um, going through some replays uh, of those of those talks, um, one of my favorite projects after the year is over is to go back and watch all of our games and, and, and kind of do a, a self diagnosis, um, a self evaluation of things that, as a head coach, that I wish we did differently, that I'd like to change moving forward. Um, you know, and, and the other thing is, myself and, and my assistant, I, we've kind of taken on the task of identifying programs at various levels that we want to emulate and, and things that we want to take and kind of diving into, into their game film and, and look for different things that we can kind of steal mold mm. and adapt to the roster that we have. And, you know, with the, with the returners that we have and, and the freshmen that we're going to be bringing in. Um, so again, you know, 
a lot of the things that we meet about are, are just different ways that we can you know, improve everything that we do, whether it's X and O wise, whether it's how we run our practices, how we travel, um, the way we eat on the road. So I definitely have a, a big desire to gain knowledge and, and find ways to do things better. Um, whether it's on on or off the court, and even the way I manage my staff and, and I communicate with my athletic department, it's it, it's important that we're always looking to to grow, you know, academically, spiritually, professionally. Um, those those are just things that for us that we're trying to do the best that we can. Um, so, like like I've said a few times, when this when the social distancing restrictions are lifted, that we can kind of get back to normal, but a, a better version of normal for us. So, coach. I have. I want to thank you for taking all this time, and, and I have five rapid fire questions to end the podcast. All tonight. right. All right. So, so the first one is: Do you have any pregame superstitions? Uh, pregame superstitions. You know, for, for me, I, I don't get dressed before the game until there's under 15 minutes to go on the game clock. Interesting. Um, I I do my pregame talk. Um, players go out there. I head to my locker room. I get dressed. Um, I come out with as little time as possible, just so I don't have to talk or pace up and down the sidelines and do enough of that during the game. So that's probably become my biggest superstition right now. Was there one unexpected challenge or reality that comes with being a head coach in college? Uh, being a head coach, you never get to appreciate the wins as much as you did as an assistant, uh, and the losses stick with you for a lot longer. <laughs> What is one rule you would change about college basketball if you could? Wow. One rule I would change about college basketball if I could. I think the easiest thing would be to move the three-point line back a little bit further, um, at least to where the men's game is. I, I think the further back the three-point line is, the better the spacing is on the floor. Um, and if, if I have to give a second answer, and you know, this would never happen, it would be to introduce a legal defense the same way they have it in the NBA and the WNBA. Interesting. I think. I think zones should be outlawed. I, I think I think for the growth and the aesthetic beauty of the game, I think everyone should be playing man to man and uh, allow a lot more free flowing offense. And so, as I said at, at the top, you got to give me one Tim Howard high school story, or just what it's like watching him go from Manchester United to Everton to being the goalie in numerous World Cups. Yeah, the, the best Tim Howard story I think I have is. We were my, my junior year. We were playing at, at St. Peter's High School in New Brunswick. At the time, they were one of the best teams in the state, and we were coming up through through the state at that time. And they had a couple guys, um, Tony Lee and Mars Mellish and Rodney White, who ended up playing with the Denver Nuggets for a bunch of years. And they were just a high level team. And we walked in there. We were by far the underdogs. And Rodney White drove to the basket to dunk the basketball, and Tim came out of nowhere and literally punched the ball to the highest row of, of the gym. And the gym went from being unbelievably crazy and ruckus to silent. And from that point on, there was only one guy in the gym who could make a play like that, and he ended up being one of the best athletes in the world for a yeah. long time. And, and, and seeing him do, do things that only Tim Howard can do, um, gave us an unbelievable level of confidence to not only go win that game, but to win our county and, and, and be one of the best teams in the state that year. But uh, he's by far, uh, you know, playing playing alongside of him and, and having known him for as long as I have, it's it's been an unbelievable blessing to be able to point to the screen and say, you know, I know that guy when he was doing this at the high school level. 
Yeah, when when the Team USA played Belgium in 2014, yeah. and literally he was keeping the whole team Standing in on it. His head. Absolutely. On his, he put the whole team on it on his back, and that was just an unbelievable experience to watch him. So, so my last question is, you know, we've seen the women's game grow and grow each and every year. I'm just curious, in in your opinion, what is needed for the women's game to truly become mainstream? Honestly, I just think it's it's more viewership. I think the, the pe- people who invest their time and, and watch the women's game um, and promote the women's game, they do it not out of any, not for any other reason that the, the quality of basketball in the women's at the women's game is extremely, extremely high. The coaching, the talent, the athleticism, and again, if if we compare ourselves to the men's game, it's it's a different game. It's, it's obviously it's below the rim, uh, but you know the, the the more exposure the women's game gets, and, and you're starting to see a lot more of it. Uh, you know, with with ESPN promoting college basketball, and you're seeing a lot more WNBA games uh, on TV throughout the summer. Um, the, the the quality of basketball is absolutely phenomenal. Um, I think we just need a little more promotion in our sport, and, and I'm not I'm not sure the exact the best way to go about doing that. But I know the more eyes that that get put on on the women's game, the more people appreciate it. Because the the coaching and the quality of basketball is absolutely phenomenal. So, coach, I really appreciate all the time and, and as always on the double double we give our the last word to the coders so do you have anything you want to say to the great people of scranton pennsylvania yeah you know the most important thing i want to say is everybody you know stay safe take care of yourselves look after your loved ones um, embrace the social distancing um, programs and, and the requirements that are in place right now i think that the more we embrace that and the better job we have doing that the, the quicker it'll be when we can go out and uh you know, spend some time face-to-face with each other again. For sure. Well said. So thanks, Coach, and uh, thanks for joining me today and wish you all the best going forward. Dave, best to you. Thank you so much. That'll do it for this episode of The Double Double. If you like this podcast, you could find us on iTunes and Spotify, and you can give us a rating or a review. Five stars would be much appreciated. And you can follow us on Twitter at DBL underscore DBL podcast. We will be back later in the week. Uh, Until then, hope you all stay safe, stay healthy, and, you know, take care and make it a great day.